Welcome to Pop and Lock. I'm Natalie Dowzicki. And I'm Landry Ayers. They influence our decisions without us knowing it. They numb our senses without us feeling it. They control our lives without us realizing it. Do you need any more hints for today's movie? It also includes the longest fight scene to probably ever grace our screens. Here to discuss John Carpenter's They Live is Senior Fellow at the Cato Institute, Julian Sanchez. Hey. And the book's editor at Reason, Jesse Walker. Well, do we want to do like a a capsule summary of what the movie is actually about for people who are like putting this on without? Sure. Give us us the Cliff's Notes. Cliff's Notes, Um, Cliff Notes, (laughs) Spark Notes. We'll go with Spark Notes. Give us the Spark Notes They Live. Uh, so John Carpenter's They Live is about a uh, young drifter played by Roddy Piper, uh, not actually ever named in the film itself, but identified in the credits as Nada. So for the first 15 minutes, this is a, a movie kind of really lacking in, in fantastic elements. It's about this drifter who's come from Colorado to L.A. to uh, look for work, for rough economic times, ends up befriending a, um, a black construction worker named Frank. And they kind of establish their worldviews. Nada is kind of a an optimist who, despite rough circumstances, believes in the American dream. Uh, Frank is much more cynical. And then after sort of witnessing this seemingly kind of unprompted uh, act of, of police brutality where they raid a church and break up a homeless encampment, uh, Nada finds a pair of sunglasses that some kind of apparent insurgent or radical group using the church as a cover has been manufacturing and putting on the sunglasses um, suddenly sees the world in black and white and begins to see through the sort of veil of illusion that has apparently been uh, placed over reality, uh, sort of matrix style, um, begins to see television advertising and billboards and magazines um, as actually containing subliminal messages, urging people to obey, uh, marry and reproduce, stay asleep, no independent thought, and begins realizing also that uh, some individuals in the world around him are sort of ghoulish, alien-looking beings um, <laughs> who quickly become alerted to his ability to perceive reality. He goes on a, a, a violent killing spree, ultimately hooks up with a, uh, a woman who works at the local television station, and then finds his friend Frank, who he, in a in kind of painfully extended alley fight scene, uh, he forces <laughs> to... Uh, uh, to wear these glasses and perceive the reality. To keep this brief, they they eventually formulate a plan uh, with the help of Holly, who is at first did not believe any of this, but uh, seems to have come around and joined up with the resistance uh, to make a raid on the television station where they believe the illusion signal is being broadcast from. And they stage an assault on that location. But at the last minute, it is revealed that Holly, too, is sold out to the aliens, shoots Frank and Nada, but ultimately does not prevent him from destroying the uh, satellite. And so the final scenes show that the world at last awakens to uh, the truth of the ghoul's existence. And I I should add, since this is all being beamed out from one satellite dish on (laughs) the roof of a building in Los Angeles, a single earthquake could have had the same effect and reveal to everybody that there are aliens um, walking uh, among us. So, Viewing this film today, it is kind of hard to miss some of the symbolism and tropes that many read, I would argue, mostly rightfully so, as at least lightly anti-Semitic, if not outright. Um, you know, you've got David Ick reptilian overseers and with like protocols of the elders of Zion, like power and collaboration, forming a new world order that the world is blind to, save for the white working class down on his luck protagonist who, uh, you know, turns violent, nada. How much criticism of Carpenter is warranted for using such what is now blatantly anti-Semitic tropes in the film. Uh, How much is on Ray Nelson, the author of the short story, Eight O'Clock in the Morning, that you could also say uses them even more? And is any criticism warranted for those use? Does that matter? Do these symbols have a meaning that they can be divorced from and diluted at least to a sort of more palatable or understanding meaning? Well, I don't think, I mean, Carpenter has said that he does not like it when um, people read um, 
anti-Semitic um, messages into his movie, that it's not how he intended it, that he doesn't see how anyone could do that, that that's just not the intent. Um, it's pretty easy to see how someone armed with an anti-Semitic uh, point of view could see that reflected back to them by the movie. But of course, there's other ways to um, to read the movie as well. I mean, all the elements here that have been uh, that resemble anti-Semitic conspiracy theories also resemble other conspiracy theories, um, and and it's the, the nature of conspiracy theories to be adapted from one use to another, um, with different uh, people put into the villainous roles. Um, even some things that we think of as just innately anti-Semitic because they're so closely attached, like the blood libel, um, the idea of the Jews secretly meeting to consume, um, you know, the Christian babies in their blood. Um, I mean, that appeared in, I mean, in medieval and early modern times, it was applied to heretics and then to Protestants. You go to late antiquity, there were stories like that about the early Christians. So it's, to me, it's not that they live as an anti-Semitic text. It's more how interesting is it that an anti-Semite can um, can read their worldview into this, as many have? Um, uh, to what extent is that a coincidence? To what extent does that mean that he's doing something, you know, drilling for oil someplace close to where these other people were? Um, I certainly don't, I don't think he's a bigot. Um, and I don't think he's ever said anything in his career that um, implies he has a worldview like that. Yeah, I think there's a... Um... I forget the name of the author. There's a book called the the formation of uh, of a persecuting society. The sort of the the, the tropes that are now kind of staples of even modern conspiracy theories about uh, the, you know, the, the sort of early modern um, uh, you know, formation of a kind of right demonized other in the form of heretics, lepers, Jews, of course. Uh, eventually, that sort of evolved. Many of those sort of tropes evolved into the 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 witch craze uh, that sort of swept through early modern Europe. Um, so it's, yeah, I mean, I think it's, you know, I mean, it, it almost works as a kind of Joseph Campbell formula for the, the conspiracy narrative. These are, you know, features you see repeated in a lot of contexts. And I think, you know, one of the, one of the keys to the sort of enduring cult status of, of they live is that sort of flexibility. I mean, I think it's pretty clear that the intent of the movie, you know, the most sort of natural read is as an anti-consumerist, um, anti one, you know, anti one percent uh, sort of allegory. Um, but as Jesse notes, it's been you know adapted to Carpenter's dismay by anti semites. You know, really anyone who you know senses that perhaps the people in power you know do not have the the best interests of the rest of us at heart, or that you know uh, a lot of media is not well designed to keep us informed, is able to project their you know their favorite version of that into uh into the into that allegory there, there's a line um and, and i don't know how often marx gets quoted on uh, pop and Lock, but <laughs> there's a line i see attributed to him I, I don't know if it's misattributed or not where he calls anti-semitism the socialism of fools and there is a sense i mean since this is often also often read as a marxist movie which carpenter has pushed back against but i think there's a lot. There's a there's a much stronger case for that, at least underlying some of his uh, views when he was writing this. You can see the way. I mean, that's that's Marx or whoever is was speaking in Marx's names. Um, sort of acknowledgement that um, this worldview that sees one uh, group of enemies can be they torn into this other direction by people with um, a different political agenda. Right. I mean, so you know, it's, it's an easy read that what 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 Nada achieves right is class consciousness in right the most sort of literal sense where you know not just so you suddenly become aware that there's this you know the, mo- the most sort of salient organizing principle is uh you know these class relations but literally the rich are uh and the powerful are are kind of another species <laughs> but this is one of the most interesting things about they live i mean in general it's interesting and this is much more sort of widely um accepted now i think that everybody knows what fan fiction is and things like that and and now that there's this whole sort of free for interpretive free for all on social media you know for every new episode of a cult tv show um unfolding you know in the same place where people talk about you know monetary policy or actually i shouldn't have said that given we're talking about anti-semitism <laughs> but, you know ordinary uh policies and so on is that um you know audiences are constantly adapting texts for their own ends and they live is really um sort of built in a way so that it's easy to do that 
Umberto Eco has an essay which it's gone out under a couple of different um, titles, I think. But the one I read was it was under the title "The Cult of the Imperfect," where he talked about the ways that I'll just quote from it: "To give rise to a cult, a film must be must already be inherently ramshackle, shaky, and disconnected in itself. A perfect film, given that we cannot reread it as we please from the point we prefer, as with a book." remains imprinted in our memory as a whole in the form of an idea or a principal emotion. But only a ramshackle film survives in a disjointed series of images and visual high points. It should show not one central idea, but many. It should not reveal a coherent philosophy of composition, but it should live on, and by virtue of, its magnificent instability. And this is a movie that, I mean, it's very ramshackle, and I say that with Absolute affection. I, I enjoy <laughs> this movie very much, you know, but it's a, um, it, I mean, when I first saw it, I would have been 19 or 20 because I, it came out when I was 18 and then I saw it on VHS. So a year or two later, you know, and um, I can remember even at the time, like on the one hand, like really being impressed by the, the scene where he puts on the sunglasses and sees the world as it really is. And, and by some other moments in there and also having that kind of what's going on here thing with like this fight that goes on forever and some of the dialogue that doesn't really ring, you know, very well in your ears and, and so on. And then what you find years pass and there's this stuff that sticks in your head and you watch it again. And there's stuff you don't remember or, or things that you thought of as central are actually out on, on the periphery and you've created this whole new, um, a movie almost in your head um, uh, from your memories of it and your conversations about it. And that's true of everything, but certain sorts of texts are, are especially suited to that. Um, Echo talks about in film Casablanca and in uh, literature, the Count of Monte Cristo. Uh, but there's, um, but you know, we, I mean, they live is, is a perfect example of, of this kind of thing. And the fact that you have multiple audiences that come to it for their own reasons. I mean, like set aside, you know, the, fringe anti-Semites, you know, but you've got the cult film audience, you've got the people who are uh, interested in it politically, whether it's from a Marxist direction, libertarian direction, fascist direction, all sorts of possible readings, um, whether it's action film fans, maybe there were some pro wrestling fans who are really into Rowdy Roddy Piper at the time this came out. <laughs> I mean, I don't think he's got that. Nowadays, he's got a fan base because he was in this movie. But at the time, you know, he was a, a famous uh, pro wrestler. Um, and as part of what was going on in that um, in that scene, of course, is they get to do show off some wrestling moves. Um, and all these people are uh, taking different, bringing different things to the movie and taking different things away from it. And so if you're interested in the ways that, um, you know, audiences interact with texts and create their own meaning, they live is just a perfect specimen for for thinking about that. I was curious why to make this movie in 1988 and what it meant to that audience then versus like what it means to a 2021 audience, because I, I watched it for the first time two days ago. Um, so I had seen like those popular memes that come for, from the movie and all that kind of stuff. So I, I knew generally that the movie was like horror and <laughs> was like, kind of strange but that's also because landry picked it so i just made those assumptions off the bat but um listen i <laughs> don't need this <laughs> <laughs> but i'm curious kind of how the original audience might have viewed the film versus how we view it now and kind of what was important to them or what they kind of gleaned from the film then what do you guys think you one thing that uh that i think jumps out now or reads a bit differently now um is uh, you know, we see the, you know, the process essentially of Nada, you know, becoming awake or radicalized, uh, you know, at the start. Um, he looks on with, you know, more or less seeming indifference as a, a, a blind black preacher is sort of hassled by the police. Um, but then right before he discovers the glasses that let him, you know, so see through the, the, the illusion, um, he witnesses, uh, a scene of, you know, really uh, unpleasant police brutality as they uh, they they savagely beat an old man and, and the same blind preacher, uh, and then walks through uh, the, the sort of ruins of a wrecked homeless encampment with a um, uh, an ad for high fashion playing in the background. Um, so this is the moment where he's 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 already essentially um, 
you know, seen through things. He's he's had his worldview changed, and it's only you know then it's kind of physically confirmed with the discovery of the glasses. But that the you know the pivotal moment is um, essentially direct witness, directly witnessing um, this kind of active state violence. This is a guy who uh, is set up as you know believing in the system, believing in uh, America, and um, begins to see things differently when um, when the, the the police that he presumably uh, saw as protectors, um, he now comes to see as uh, a repressive and violent force. And so, you know, this is, this is a, a moment when, of course, a lot of Americans, because of the the easy spread now of uh, images of what um, police interactions look like for, for a lot of Americans, um, have, uh, have has created um, obviously a, a, a huge demand for uh, reform of policing. Um, and I think it's been uh, a lot of people, you know, have, have in a sense had a not a moment seeing things like the, the, the George Floyd video um, and, and reevaluating, um, you know, how much, how much accountability uh, the, these, uh, you know, state agents are, are, are actually subject to. You know, obviously the, this is in the context of, right, sort of the Reagan era and yuppies and, and, and this is about kind of a, a, a carpenter's your disdain for that. Can uh, someone in, in this, can someone break down the yuppies thing for me? Cause I think <laughs> that was a big sort of cultural touchstone for a time that I think has faded. Like I know yuppies was a thing and people didn't like yuppies, but it just kind of is a vague catch all. It, is it like a weird, like, Upper middle class working in office sort of corporate yeah, I mean, drone thing. Technically, I mean, maybe it's a, it's a mislabel because the the um, you know yuppies was short for young urban professional, but most of the the ghouls uh, we see are actually older people. See, I didn't even know that it stood for that. Yeah, young urban professional. There was competing um, jargon between yuppie and yumpies for young young <laughs> ur- upper upwardly mobile. Professionals, oh. but yuppies caught on more partly because of the relation to yippies, which was a '60s thing. Um, and you had like Jerry Rubin, who used to be a yippie and levitated the Pentagon and so on. Actually, was Rubin there? I don't remember if he levitated. You know, in Chicago and so on. And who was in the uh, '80s started working on Wall Street and arranging like networking salons for young urban professionals at the Palladium, and sort of like embracing the level label yuppie and. Um, went on a debating tour with Abby Hoffman in the mid eighties, yippie versus yuppie. Um, and it was, and they had, um, they had like on the cover of Newsweek yuppie with a picture of like a couple characters from Doonesbury all looking buttoned down. Um, you had like the anti yuppie die yuppie scum buttons. Um, it, it was very, um, it just sort of represented in, in some ways, it just represented sort of an idea of consumption signifiers that nowadays it's weird people associated together because the 80s are long in the past. So Perrier, sushi, certain forms of cars, certain forms of watches, and, and so on. I mean, the idea that sushi is thought of as an elite thing seems weird now because everybody eats it, but back then it was thought of as strange. But it also sort of represented this idea. I mean, when someone Jerry Rubin, like Jerry Rubin talked about it, he was stressing the sort of continuities between 60s individualism and 80s individualism and sort of self-expressiveness moving into things like business, but keeping a social conscious and so and so on. But there was also like very much around it, the idea of the sellout um, and a big part of 80s sort of left wing narratives. Speaking of someone who was like a left wing teen in the 80s was there were a group of people who had been down with fighting the man and and now they were off with jerry rubin and eldridge cleaver not that eldridge cleaver was a yuppie but he had moved to the right and uh, you know bob dylan was a christian now hadn't you heard and so there's all these sort of thoughts that were um that were in the air as well so but i I don't want to break up because julian was starting to make a point i think in this movie that the, the yuppies are sort of represented less by the ghouls than by the human collaborators that we see in the last third of the movie with the ghouls because those are the people who um, decide the thing to do is to sell out, to give up a bit of your soul and just get what you can out of the system because it's not like you can bring it down, but you can make something for yourself. Like the drifter character who we see at the end in his like a button down suit and all and gives them a tour. He's not a yuppie. I mean, in, in the sort of like he's not the right age, as Landry was saying, but he kind of represents, I think, that kind of vision of the yuppie as a stock character. Um, it, you know, when Carpenter wrote this, um, 
Julian, I we got far away from whatever you were starting to say. Since you mentioned Abby Hoffman, uh, it's worth noting that the um right the sunglasses that allow Nada and then Frank to sort of pierce the veil of illusion and see the systems of control as they truly are 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 referenced a couple times as Hoffman lenses. Um, and most people think that's a reference either to uh, the sort of uh, '60s radical Abby Hoffman, uh, probably best known for uh, "Steal This Book." Um, or um, possibly to Albert Hoffman, the uh, inventor of LSD. Two different, two different, very different directions. Just <laughs> through the veil of illusion. Julian and I, I know, have both read Jonathan Lethem's little book about They Live, which is a great piece of film criticism for anyone who wants to read a book-length exploration of an '80s cult movie. It's it's a lot of fun. But he also notes that, and this is kind of getting back to what Landry brought up at the beginning. There are some people, uh, there's an anti-Semitic writer by the name of Michael A. Hoffman II, um, had a number of fringe uh, views. He believed that fairies exist and the Holocaust did not. So it's a whole bunch of um, worldviews colliding there. But um, some people, you know, on the more anti-Semitic side of this movie's fan base have uh, pointed to him as a, I mean, I mean, nobody thinks that Carpenter was thinking of Michael A. Hoffman. I I think Albert Hoffman is a much more likely candidate, but um, uh, that's another uh, sort of coincidental um, connection for for that reading. Speaking of the glasses, I'm kind of curious, like in terms of a visual element, what the what you guys think the significance of the color eyes versus the black and white is, other than it being like it's obviously striking to the audience that you're like looking into the real world, but I was wondering why they're flipped. So you would think that the world, like, why isn't he, why isn't Nada living in the black and white world? And then the real world's the one that's in color. A reverse Wizard of Oz scenario. Yeah. Yeah. And there, there's a moment in the, um, when he goes to the underground cell of the the, uh, the, the people meeting before their, the police break in and, and start shooting everybody, um, where you can hear someone saying, um, we're colorized. Um, maybe it was it's colorized. I don't know, but I heard that as we're colorized and the idea kind of colorization of movies, of course, was another thing that people were fretting about in the eighties. And there's sort of a funny idea sort of Im- embedded in here that maybe we live in the sort of rich black and uh, world of these black and white classic movies, but those ghoulish aliens have brainwashed us into thinking it's all technicolor. Um, or it could just be, you know, another weird coincidence because he was looking for what would work in terms of, you know, having the, the Hoffman lenses sequences. Uh, I mean, so much of this movie, you don't know what's intentional, uh, intentionally evocative and what's accidentally evocative. I do think part of what's going on is that, um, I don't know if folks know that the artist Barbara Kruger, who is, I think, pretty clearly the visual inspiration for the aesthetic of that whole sequence where you're not even seeing this little messaging. So she works in a lot in um, the sort of stark contrast of black and white um, with, you know, kind of large slogans, uh, essentially uh, on a, uh, in block lettering on a surface. Um, so it may just part of be, you know, in part absorbing that, that aesthetic influence. Jesse, you wrote down an interesting question in prep for this. And I think this might be a good time to ask it is he wrote down, um, is Rowdy, Rowdy, Rowdy Piper's character, a mass shooter. And I'm curious why, why you thought of that question. Well, I mean, here's this, I mean, from the point of view of, I mean, first of all, um, there was an interesting, like a little elision in, in what Julian said. And this is the sort of thing I had forgotten between, between viewings. Like, like, how do the aliens become aware that uh, Roddy Piper, that Nada can see him? Because it's not like they have like special alarms to let them know someone's put on the glasses. It's because he loudly announces the fact, <laughs> tells this uh, <laughs> woman who turns out to be a ghoul that she's ugly, and then goes into a bank and starts shooting all the ghouls he can see. Um, as sort of his instant reaction to all this, and which you can sort of wonder, is this necessarily the best possible way to um, to react to this discovery? Um, but even, set it, even setting that aside, let's take it for granted that the best way to um, to uh, deal with uh, these um, infiltrators in our midst is to start shooting them on on site. Even the ones who, even though they supposedly um, 
rule the world have appeared to have kind of working class jobs um, in like a TV studio um, or just doing or ordinary things like watching the TV sets that everyone else is watching um, with the subliminal messages and so on. Um, but setting all that aside, from the point of view of someone in the um, in the bank or in the TV sta- uh, station that sees him shooting, he's just a guy who start, uh, loudly announces that he's going to start kicking ass and start shooting people apparently at random. Um, and as with the matrix, um, which also raises these questions, you know, there, there's a, there's a thing, well, isn't this kind of the worldview of someone who's, who uh, goes on? I mean, people go in shooting sprees for different reasons, but you know, some of your classic most infamous and feared uh, shooting sprees, um, the rationales sound, you know, kind of like this. Um, and it's interesting to watch this or to watch the matrix um, from you know, from the imagined point of view of someone in the line at the bank who suddenly sees someone showing up with a bunch of guns, um, firing at what are, as far as you can tell, um, ordinary human beings going on about their business. I mean, it's worth noting, not, not a, is maybe up there with Wagner's Siegfried in the, in the kind of pantheon of moron protagonists. Um, <laughs> you know, he's, he is uh portrayed as sort of brave and good natured, but he's obviously not particularly bright. He, you know, again, finds these glasses, discovers that there are uh aliens in control of everything around us. And the first thing he does is to uh you know loudly berate one in public and make clear that he's able to uh, able to see their real forms. Uh and of course instantly makes himself a target. Um but you know, the interesting thing to me is is that the 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 film sort of shows us well there is an organized resistance of intellectuals and scientists who have uh, you know, sort of discovered this, uh, but they ultimately seem kind of ineffectual. It is, it is not as sort of unplanned, um, crude, violent outlash that ultimately, I suppose, the little planning at the end um, proves effective. Uh, you know, I don't know to what extent that is a kind of an intentional um, critique of, uh, I suppose, you know, intellectual radicals. One of my favorite lines in the Jonathan Lethem book is where he says, no offense, but They Live is probably the stupidest film ever to take ideology as its explicit subject. It's also probably the most fun. Um, and that's true both on the obvious level of like, you know, what the film is doing, but also that kind of goes through to things like Piper's character and, and uh, his approach to performing uh, to the performance. Well, s- speaking of performance, um, we cannot do this podcast without talking about the fight scene. Um, so uh, there has to be a reason, a more logical reason why the fight scene was so long. What What's our take on that? What Also, was, was it worth having a fight scene that long? <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, looking back, it certainly helps cement the movie's legacy as, you know, it makes it memorable that it has this long thing. And then it's recreated. It's happened on South Park. I believe it's it's Adventure Time. It's several other things. But I mean, there is a the easy explanation could be that Roddy Piper is a professional wrestler and they were like, this is an action movie. And if we're going to hire a professional wrestler, um, we might as well get him to, you know, you know, really put on a show for us. Um, so, I mean, that that could be one you know, more, I don't know if it's practical, I you could say, but it's one way that you could get butts in seats. Yeah, it also gets it up to that 90-minute um, running time. Yes, <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah, so, I mean, I, there are actually two, two kind of completely different um, <laughs> takes on it. So the first is, look, the film sets up from very early on that seeing the truth um, of, of, of how the world works um, is a painful process. At the at the uh, at the very beginning, um, one of the first sort of indications of something hinky afoot is a hacker who's kind of broken through uh, the TV broadcast that some of the folks in this homeless encampment are watching, uh, and he starts saying, "Well, they they control us all. They have put us to sleep." Um, and everyone starts getting headaches, and they do this a couple times. So the the idea is that somehow part of the system of control is that we've been indoctrinated or influenced in some way to find the process of trying to shock us out of it, it's self-painful. Um, uh, this is, you know, uh, fodder for, for, for Marxist readings, obviously, right? That we, we, um, we kind of enjoy uh, the ideology we've, we've, we've consumed. Um, and so part of what's going on here, right, is Frank, Frank who is set up as the cynic, um, who in some sense already knows this truth, that 
you know, the one percent are not your friend. The system is rigged against you. Um, still fights against putting the glasses on. And so stretching that fight scene out so long actually in a way kind of makes it painful for the audience as well, right? This is not a kind of Hollywood style fight scene where, uh, where it's a kind of choreographed ballet. There's a real kind of, I mean, it, it's unrealistic in that people take a lot more hits than a real person would without, you know, being unconscious, but um, <laughs> it's not a matrix style ballet. Yeah. Yeah. A, a painful process for, the audience in some sense as well, right? It sort of is kind of uncomfortable to watch these guys go at it for that long. Um, it is, right, it's an interesting inversion, by the way, that Frank is the one who resists this when Nada was the one who, you know, he believes in America and if you work hard, you'll be rewarded. Um, and you wonder if, you know, maybe uh, Frank is played by Keith David, is, is, of course, is a black guy. Uh, and, you know, maybe part of the subtext here is, you know, Nada is sort of naive about the consequences of realizing the truth, right? He, he starts yelling at the aliens and berating them, um, apparently not having it occur to him that, well, you know, um, there are going to be personal consequences for you of this when they, when they become aware of this. Um, you know, uh, uh, Frank, the black guy is uh, well aware of, um, of, you know, what it might mean to, to draw the attention of, of the power structures. The other kind of gloss on this is, and, uh, you know, there's a kind of easy queer reading of They Live. Um, I, you know, John Carpenter is not, as, as far as I know, gay, but um, he's been married a couple times. Um, but the early friendship between Frank and Nada is just like super overtly coded as, um, as a kind of gay flirtation. Um, right. You got a shirtless Roddy Piper doing kind of a cheesecake pose and they're, Hey, you know, you want to go get a meal at the wire. You know, they're, they're, it is, it is, it's, it's not subtle. Um, and, and there's actually also a movie, right. That, that sort of makes, um, the sort of, you know, heteronuclear family kind of uh, one of the parts of the system of control. Um, when, when, uh, Nada first puts on the glasses, he sees the messages, uh, uh, obey, conform, no independent thought, and then marry and reproduce is sort of is, is right, part of this series. Um, so the idea that, you know, kind of traditional you know, hetero family life is part of what is designed to keep you anesthetized. Um, and so with that kind of backdrop of this, you know, pretty, pretty heavy handed kind of homoerotic tension, sexual tension between Frank and Nada, obviously, right, the, the, the fight scene itself takes on this kind of almost erotic charge. Um, so, you know, I mean, they're saying is, well, look, the, the, you know, the, this alien sort of social structure is one in which the sort of the physical attraction between these guys, two guys kind of ends up having to take, be sublimated into violence. Um, that this, you know, really this should be a sex scene. And instead we get this, um, you know, this sort of very heavy breathing, uh, exhausting fight scene. Just to add to your, um, to your queer reading of, of the film, um, Bear in mind that it's uh, the the woman who seems to be set up as uh, Nada's love interest turns out to betray him. And in fact, when you think about it, and this is one of those things that jumped out at me when I saw it again decades later, um, and is that uh, there's really no rational reason why to expect them to be together based on what happened in the movie, other than some sort of a m movie cliches. She is introduced at the point in the movie where the love interest would be uh, introduced. She uh, there's a sort of that kind of um, uh, kidnapping uh, to save yourself kind of thing that we've seen in other movies where the man and the woman get together. Ultimately, um, doesn't happen here. And it's, it's almost comic the way he's just sort of like, I got to save Holly. Where's Holly? Um, as though there's been all this interaction between them, when in fact, all that's really happened between them is he kidnapped her and then she beamed him on the head with a, a bottle and threw him out the window. Um I, I will say about the, about the fight scene before we leave that altogether. When I saw this the first time, uh, age twenty or whatever, I thought the fight scene was dumbest thing about the movie. I thought that and just sort of aspects of the way uh, Rowdy Roddy Piper uh, approached, uh, you know, did some line readings were what kept us from you know from being a, a great movie instead of this sort of ramshackle good movie I had fun watching. And then when I watch it again. Um, Decades later, I mean, it's probably like the third or fourth time I've seen it, but it's been a long time. Um, I, to me, that fight scene became almost like a 
Antonin Artaud style endurance, um, and, and you know, sort of it, it's there's sort of like um, an anti art, you know, aspect to it that I really appreciate it. That every time you think this could end, it goes on some more, and sometimes it becomes self aware, and they start to chuckle at each other about something that happened in the fight, and it, it's almost like you know we're going to just this is. This fight scene, which in some ways is like, you know, like the most sort of lowbrow action movie thing uh, it, that happens in the film is also the the part of the film that most steadily refuses to conform to what anyone expects from a mainstream uh, movie going experience. It does not have the Jackie Chan style uh, uh uh, you know, Buster Keaton antics, you know, or, or, uh, um, you know, amazing, you know, fights, uh, uh, a fight form it, it it does uh it it goes on so long it, it it keeps teasing you with it being about to to end and and then doesn't end and it's it it's almost it's it's almost like um just some sort of experimental theater thing that's been dropped this and i i, I mean, i'm not going to call it the best part of the movie because the best part of the movie of course is when he puts on um, the sunglasses but uh, and that's the most impressive part of the movie. But it is impressive to me that Carpenter was willing to do something that so defied expectations as put in this utterly endless um, uh, combat between his, you know, his, his buddy heroes. It, it also, to me, very much seems in in a very sincere or artistic way to be a reference to. Not just oh we've got a you know a pro wrestler in the lead role so let's throw a fight scene in there. It is sort of emblematic of the art of professional wrestling. Like we talked about before, the sort of willful suspension of disbelief that some of these yuppies and and people that are sort of seen as I mean some of them are villains but not all of them are uh, the sort of people that look into reality and still willfully ignore what is true and go on believing what they want to believe. And then you have this extravagant, drawn out, artistic, performative fight scene, much like sort of the that that is self-referential and with a thin veneer of reality, but is still sort of this like kayfabe uh, professional wrestling style um, show that they put on. So it, it, I think it might be something to do with utilizing that skill and the sort of metatextual readings of Rowdy Roddy Piper in a movie like that. But as a, you know, it is in a way a celebration or sort of using him to say, this is how you're used to looking at Roddy Piper. And you can kind of view him in the same way in this scene. And how does that recontextualize the movie? Yeah, I mean the the movie is 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 loves playing with these sort of different la- layers of reality, um, you know, in this in the same way that Nada is seeing through uh, the veneer uh, the aliens have have constructed. Um, the very first uh, you know thing we see in the film is the title card they live, um, but then the, the the sort of the first shot fades in behind it, and so what was a superimposed text becomes. Uh, a part of the graffiti on the wall in the backdrop of the scene. Um, so it's already sort of playing, well, is that really part of the scene or was that a superimposition? Um, and then the next thing we see, I think, is uh, a, a credit, a screenplay by Frank Armitage, um, who is, of course, a character in the movie. Um, the the screenplay was actually written by John Carpenter, but he's already playing with uh, blending, uh, you know, blending the, the different levels of reality in the same way they um, they run back to at the end. Um, when we, we are in a bar and we see a, 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 a an alien ghoul movie reviewer deriding uh, directors like John Carpenter and John Romero for uh, for the, the crass and violent stuff they put out. And, we, and then immediately after that, of course, we end on like a, a, a completely gratuitous titty shot and uh, and, and uh, a sex joke. Exactly. <laughs> Which also shows us that the ghouls have been not just living among us and working with us, but having sex with us, maybe entering relationships with us. And it really kind of, again, makes me wonder about exactly what ghoul life is like. I mean, it, it, it does not seem like this is, you know, the, all the Illuminati and their secret castle uh, looking down and, on us in luxury. They're, they're just um, other people. Is there that much of a difference between um, these sort of people on the low end of the ghoul hierarchy or what we assume is the some sort of ghoul hierarchy 
and you know the uh, Ameri- uh, uh, or Earthlings, I should say, who have uh, humans who have joined up um, and and become part of the um, willing collaborators uh, with the ghouls that we also see in the film. Um, and this is one of many uh, one of one of many issues that the movie sort of raises without exploring, and you wonder to what extent it's self conscious and to what extent again it's accidental. Um, it is it is sort of I think a nice inversion where y- you in this kind of movie, um, where even in the title, it's sort of playing with, uh, kind of fifties sci-fi tropes. You think there's going to be a, 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 a part where you finally see their high tech spaceship and hear about their, their real master plan. How they're all going to, you know, going to pave the earth and, 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 uh, I don't know, eat all the humans or something. Um, but no, it's, you know, they, they have a, a, a kind of shoddy looking kind of hotel style conference room where they're talking about, uh, you know, profit margins and, and, uh, revenue growth. Uh, and, you know, the, their kind of evil plan is our existing reality, right? Yes. Yeah, the status quo. There's, there's not right. There isn't some, as far as we can tell from the film, some further agenda, uh, you know, all, you know, what they want is to, uh, to stay rich and, uh, uh, have the rest of us happy, you know, eating junk food and and uh, and watching sitcoms. I I, would, I just read a book with my younger daughter um, uh, when I had read many years ago Daniel Pinkwater's The Snark Out Boys and the Avocado of Death. I don't know if there are any other Daniel Pinkwater fans on this uh, podcast and so on. But what a title! It, it's <laughs> I, I, I everyone should read Daniel Pinkwater, especially Lizard Music and Ellen Mendelsohn, The Boy from Mars, both of which I will say are masterpieces and two of my favorite novels in any genre of the seventies. But hmm. this one and lizard music actually plays with the idea that um, pod people are here and you don't want to get too upset about it because that'll turn you into one of them. Um, he sort of like plays that kind of paranoia about paranoia tropes in this bit of dialogue, but in snark out boys and the avocado of death, which has a whole bunch of um, different ideas happening at once. And it's a, it's a very funny book and deliberately silly. Um, so he can afford to just throw in one, um, one bit. And one thing that sort of gets thrown in at the beginning is there's a crazy character who claims that all licensed realtors um, have been possessed by extraterrestrials, by people from outer space. Um, and then this, this is sort of like a sign that this person is crazy. because All these characters are crazy in different ways. And then later on, we find out that, you know, the avocado of death, you know, controls this computer and it's going to be part of their way of defeating um you know, the licensed realtors, <laughs> or, you know, and again, that's a sort of like a, a background gag though, but we realize there's more to it. And then when they have the whole thing where they find the kidnap victim and they've, um, they've, uh, you know, arrested, you know, the criminal sort of Moriarty style mastermind and all, and all, and all of these things. Uh, and the last two pages, uh, the, the mastermind says, but I still destroyed the computer. Blah, ha, ha. And so, and one of the main characters says, does this mean that we're going to, that we, uh, what are we going to do about these invaders from space who have taken over all our licensed realtors? And the final line of the book is, uh, someone saying, well, I guess we'll just have to learn to live with it. And, you know, I, that's the great being able to end the science fiction story on the uh, concept of the invaders are here. They're just doing their thing. They're selling real estate. Um, we'll, we'll just have to live with, you know, some of our people actually being, um, the ghouls from they live. Although that book came out four years before they live. Um, I actually was going to go into something else, but then I went off on that tangent about, <laughs> about the book I read my daughter. Um, I, I will say, just since I keep talking about how this movie is ramshackle and a lot of things you can't tell if they're accidental, there is a lot of stuff that is deliberate. And I do think there is kind of an argument built into the film on such a structural structural level that I think it, it's almost certainly deliberate. Um, it's... 90 minutes long, three half hours, three acts. Um, the first um, act ends almost exactly on the half hour mark um, with um, Nada putting on the sunglasses. And the first half hour is done. It, it's just about the exploitation of the underclass. If you see this movie as a critique of capitalism, then this is like the, um, this is about these sort of people who are the refuse of the system who are on the outs, who can't find work or who are doing sort of menial work um, in, in a, uh, in, in ways that don't work out very well for them. Um, and then the second half hour begins with them putting on the glasses 
and and ideology is made manifest. Um, you had some stuff in the background with like TV and advertising being mocked, but again, it's in the background of the first half hour. Now he's seeing the world as it is, um, and you uh, see it capitalism presented as a system that pushes people into these rigidly defined forms of behavior. Um, the ones that are um, laid out as obey and conform and marry and reproduce and so on. And in the third half, we see the collaborators and, you know, the, the folks who, you know, at the time you would say yuppies. Um, and it's the people who essentially have seen through um, the system, but nonetheless decide to go along, along with it. Um, and, you know, in each half hour of the film really um, moves the camera towards, you know, another part of the system that Carpenter disapproves of. Um, and it's, uh, that's so cleanly done again. I, I, I mean, I, I was joking when I said maybe he did the, um, the fight scene to pad out the 90 minute running time, but it really does pad out that second half hour. So it just at the two thirds mark, you know, we suddenly move into this, uh, whole other set, uh, section of the movie. And it, it does suggest to me that, you know, Carpenter was, you know, more than just kind of a B movie auteur with, a oddball collection of ideas who, you know, got lucky and stumbling into a cult favorite here. And now for the time in the show where we get to share all of the other things that we've been enjoying with our time at home. This is Locked In. So, Jesse, Julian, what else have you been enjoying with your time at home? The last thing I read was uh, Claire North's novel, The Pursuit of William Abbey, which is in the early 20th century about a... a, a, uh, doctor who is one of, as it turns out, several people um, who have been cursed with a, a kind of phantom that very slowly uh, follows them. And as it gets closer, uh, compels them to speak the truth in other people's hearts, um, which as it turns out is a, is a uh, highly sought after skill by intelligence services. So he becomes sort of conscripted into the British, uh, British intelligence to, uh, uh, to be used as a tool and develops a, a sort of antagonistic relationship with uh, with one of his uh, handlers. Uh, it's, a, it's a fun romp. And I'm reading um, Gene Wolfe's legendary uh, Book of the New Sun series. Uh, it's a four-part um, kind of very, very, very far future. Um, so so far in the future, it almost reads like kind of medieval fantasy novel about a young uh, torturer named Severian, who is a, a, a sort of unreliable narrator, uh, as we kind of discover over the course of the books. Um, I know I'm six uh, years late to this, but I am finally watching Better Call Saul, and I just made it <laughs> to the beginning of the fifth season. I'm going to be even more late than you. Yeah. I've been, I've heard nothing but good things, and I have yet to sit down to watch a single episode. Yeah, well, I had not, before the pandemic, even watched Breaking Bad. It was one of those things I was sort of putting off till, um, you know, as I, I, I remember when I finished my um, my last book, I, I celebrated by finally watching Buffy the Vampire Slayer a decade, you know, or so too late. Um, and, and I did that with Breaking Bad. And then I figured, well, the next thing to watch is Better Call Saul, which is much better, I think, than Breaking Bad. I mean, Breaking Bad is a good show, but there are, you know, I, I can make criticisms and so forth. I, I find Better Call Saul much rich. I mean, they took my two favorite characters from Breaking Bad, Saul and Mike. They gave them their own show and then they built out from there and, I find it much richer. I, I find the, um, I guess the first um, show is ultimately about, you know, the ongoing corruption of a character or the revealing, you know, sort of his corrupt nature that was there to begin with. But in this case, um, we're, we're seeing this sort of ongoing transformation often in a corrupt direction of these characters and um, in ways that I think are, since there's more, more than one person doing this, it's, it, I don't know, it, it just feels richer um, and it, it, it's, uh, doesn't, I, I don't, I, I'm enjoying the show very much. And, uh, that's, that's, that's the main thing I've been consuming. So right now my, what I'm watching is Veep and I am binge watching it for an episode that we're recording next week. I had never seen an episode of Veep since, uh, I guess until I started last week. Um, and I don't know how that one slipped through the cracks because it's like very much like my style of leisure watching. Um, but I've been watching Veep. And then on the reading front, I um, am on a quest to basically read every uh, World War II fiction novel that exists. Um, so I, I started another one this week called Those Who Save Us. Um, it's really interesting. It's um, 
there it's in parts. So the first part was about this woman's mom who um, was German uh, living through World War II. And she was a single mom. And the story is told from the daughter's perspective. Um, so it like bounces back and forth from like when the daughter was two to what now the daughter is a um, professor at the University of Michigan. And she's doing a project on interviewing um, both Holocaust survivors and the role of German women in the war. Um, it's very interesting. I'm about like 200 pages in, so I'm not exactly sure how it ends. But And then I still I have yet to see the Godzilla vs. Kong. And I don't really know if that's like worth my time. <laughs> but we'll see. Maybe I'll throw that one in for next time. <laughs> N- Natalie, what's the best of the World War II novels you've read so far? The Invisible Bridge. Um, Trevor Burris actually suggested it to me. That one was excellent. Um, me and my sister are like, keep going back and forth and suggesting each other more World War II fiction books. But that's like, that's my bread and butter for book genres. Uh, for me, I also have not been watching as much recently. I have been watching my wife play a video game because she is obsessed <laughs> with Dragon Age Inquisition because we just got a PlayStation. So she is just devouring it. She has two different save files going. So she bounces between them and does different sort of story choices and, and narrative trees throughout each and just she cannot get enough of it. So I end up watching her play that game a lot. And that has sort of taken over our our television time. I haven't watched any new shows or movies much lately. But I have been reading, uh, I reread a few books uh, recently that I I really, really liked. Um, One of them, or two of them are short fiction collections. One is The Heaven of Animals by David James Poissant. And another one that's a little bit older, but I had read a long time ago and revisited that is tends to be much shorter reads is Tabloid Dreams by Robert Olin Butler. And they're very sort of interesting, magical realism uh, short stories that are, are great and easy to read. Um, I also just reread How to Wreck a Nice Beach by Dave Tompkins, which is about the history of the vocoder uh, and how the sort of intelligence agency uh, or intelligence sector during World War II and Bell Labs and AT&T gave rise to inventing the vocoder and cryptography during the war and then into like funk music and Africa Bambata and craft work. And so it's a really interesting, you know, through line that explains how this device that, you know, when you hear it, you immediately are sort of it's it's in so much now uh, and it's strange wartime roots. So if that's something that interests you, how to wreck a nice beach. And I am in the middle of There There by Tommy Orange, which is a phenomenal uh, novel told from multiple perspectives, all about uh, Native Americans living in the Oakland, California area in modern day and I, I don't know how it's all going to tie up, but they're all sort of bound together by these ties and end up somehow related by this powwow event that they are all connected to. And it's heartbreaking and so well written. I think it was a, a finalist for the the Pulitzer, the National Book Award, one of those. Uh, I highly recommend They're There by Tommy Orange. Thanks for listening. As always, the best way to get more Pop and Lock related content and connect with us is to follow us on Twitter. You can find us at the handle at Pop and Lock Pod. That's Pop, the letter N, Lock with an E like the philosopher Pod. Make sure to follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. We look forward to unraveling your favorite show or movie next time. Pop and Lock is produced by me, Landry Ayers, as a project of Libertarianism.org. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.